0: You're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. The following program was recorded at Penn Medicine's live event, Hot topics for the primary care provider. Your host is Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Dr. Bernholtz welcomes Dr. Patrick Connolly, neurosurgeon at Penn Medicine, whose practice specializes in a wide range of neurosurgical conditions with a focus on intracranial and spine disorders. As a member of Penn Neurosurgery, Dr. Connolly provides neurosurgical options and access to other Penn specialists, connecting patients to the most innovative surgical and non surgical treatments for aneurysms, brain tumors, and other brain and spine conditions. And now, here is your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz.
1: Our topic today as a neurosurgeon, we're going to be focusing on spine health. Um, We're going to talk about back and neck pain. (laughs) As everyone here knows intimately, back and neck pain are a staple of the primary care visit. But one question that often comes up is at what point... Should you be referred, should you be called for consultation when it comes to the patient
2: with back and neck pain? As most everyone in this room knows, 80 to 90% of people have an episode of back or neck pain in their life at some point, so it's extremely common. And 90% of those patients will resolve their symptoms within a period of about six weeks or even, maybe even a bit less. If a patient goes beyond that six-week period and their symptoms have not resolved, then that's somebody that you might think a little bit further about, sending for another opinion. Other things that you would think about are even if somebody has leg pain or classical radicular pain, that will also get better in time. The kind of person that you're going to worry about is if they have profound weakness or weakness that comes on very quickly. If there are other associated things like urinary incontinence or bowel incontinence, but these are pretty rare in the scheme of things. Really, 1% to 2% of patients with even lumbar disc disease will end up having that kind of clinical picture. And there's other things, too, like if somebody has a history of cancer and develops back pain, if they have a history of osteoporosis, then things like that are are sorts of patients where you'd want to sort of escalate inquiring with a neurosurgeon.
1: The eight to nine weeks is especially pertinent in my own personal case, sitting in this chair for a long enough time with extraordinary back pain radiating up uh, to my shoulders. I, I'm assuming although these primary care clinicians might be seeing me tomorrow, I might not be consulting with you immediately on that.
2: <laughs> uh, typically not immediately. I mean, it, it really depends on the severity of the presentation. So if someone presents with severe symptoms and they're extremely debilitated and their function is impaired, then that's somebody that you might want to have see a little bit sooner. And with somebody with less severe Symptoms and it's clearly ridiculous pain, and there's certainly a course of conservative treatment that you can try first. I can tell a story. When I was 23, I had a herniated lumbar disc, and it was pretty miserable, right, for about a month. But then it, it did actually start to get better on its own. Combination of nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory medication, touch of a little Tylenol 3, and things got better. And that's usually the story of how things go.
1: But do we go to the other story then, the surgical side, the surgical solutions that you offer or that patients are presented with? What are the different types of surgical? options out there for patients that are coming in with neck and back pain that require your consultation?
2: There's really a number of different categories, and a lot of times it varies with age. So for younger patients, say between 20 and 60, the most common thing you're going to look at is uh, somebody with a herniated a disc that's causing compression of a nerve and causing radicular symptoms, plus or minus back pain. And that's something that does tend to get better in time. For the older patients, 60 and above, 60s, 70s, 80s, and sometimes even in their 90s, the lumbar spondylosis tends to be a lot more common, which is basically arthritis of the lumbar spine. And we get it, unfortunately, just as a consequence of walking on two legs. Everybody gets some degree of it. And most of the time, we can manage that with conservative treatment. But a lot of times, people will want to know, patients and physicians will want to know from a surgeon, well, is my patient going to end up in a wheelchair? What's my outlook? And that's, a surgeon can be helpful with that, too.
1: If we consider these, some of these different options that you have at your disposal, what are some of the immediate highlight benefits and risks that come to mind for you, such as some of the problems that you discussed and some of the surgical solutions that are there. Are there any key factors that make you say the risk would be too high or the benefit would certainly outweigh the risk here?
2: The main thing in terms of offering a benefit to a patient, a good course of conservative treatment is really important, again, symptoms permitting. Once you have a patient go through six or eight weeks of conservative treatment, which may be physical therapy, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, even the PO steroids, epidural steroid injections, just a range of different possibilities, and the patient is still having a lot of symptoms, then you get a lot more comfortable about offering surgery. The other thing that's really important is to make sure that the anatomical picture on the scan matches up with what you're seeing when you examine the patient. So if you have a patient that has a large herniated disc, say, for instance, but they don't really have that much leg pain, well, that doesn't always necessarily fit. Or if you have somebody who has a mismatch, so let's say they have a herniated disc on the right side, but most of their pain is on the left... Well, then that's something that gives you a little bit of pause, too. And it's not that you wouldn't consider doing surgery for that, but it's something that you definitely need to talk to your patient about where, hey, there's a mismatch here. Your symptom picture and your physical findings are not perfect. So those are things that can decrease the chance of you having a good outcome. In terms of risks or patients that you wouldn't want to operate on, I would say that the patients that we worry about our patients, again, that have a mismatch of symptoms. They have pure back pain. They have other psychological findings. So the surgery that we do is, of course, we like anatomical. When everything fits anatomically, it's great. But that always occurs within the milieu of an overall biosocial picture. So you want to make sure that you're going to be able to help your patient.
1: And that sort of ties into my other question. I wanted to flip it a little bit and ask you about the ideal patient. I am mean, sure a number of our audience from a primary care perspective, they really hone the idea of this needs to get some surgical consultation. They get very quick at being able to get a sense of that. But the question of who the ideal candidate for surgery often persists. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, there's a couple of ideal candidates you can think of. So one ideal candidate is somebody, let's say they're 32. They've had two months of symptoms where it's radicular pain. They have a weakness in their gastrocnemius and the lateral numbness, and they have a decreased reflex at the ankle, and they have a herniated L5S1 disc on the left side that's pretty big. I mean, that's pretty easy. That's pretty ideal for a neurosurgeon. I think that we can make a pretty good, I can't guarantee it, but I think that when you talk to your patient, you can definitely say, look, there's. it all fits. You're young, you're healthy, you're going to get better from this. You haven't gotten better with conservative treatment. And you're somebody that, if there's anybody I can help, it's probably going to be you. The other kind of patient where you would think about is the older folks. You'd think six people in their 70s and 80s said, oh, you know, they're too fragile. These patients do fantastic if they have the right anatomical findings and they have the right picture. And they present a lot differently. They present with what's called neurogenic claudication, which, again, most people in this room know what that's all about. They can walk a certain distance. They tend to be flexed forward a little bit, and they have to sit down to relieve their symptoms. When you look at an MRI scan, you can see that there's a lot of overgrown bone that's compressing the nerves in the lumbar spine. It's typically at 4.5 and at L3.4, but it can be at other levels too. And those patients too, again, after a good trial of conservative treatment, physical therapy, sometimes epidural steroid injections, oral steroids perhaps, a mix that doesn't have to be in any particular sequence. It doesn't even have to be all of them. We can talk to our patient about what the different options are. Once those patients have a trial, those, and they have, again, good anatomical findings on an MRI scan, those patients do really well with surgery. That's really the case for most patients. You've seen it in the common literature, in the newspaper, in the mainstream media, and in the medical literature. There's a lot of lumbar fusion and a lot of people putting a lot of instrumentation into patients but most of those patients in my practice and my partner Steve Dante's practice too I mean most of those patients do pretty well with decompression without necessarily requiring any kind of fusion or any kind of big instrumentation so a conservative approach can often yield the best results I think so but when it's time for surgery then yeah the, the surgery is it works very well too
1: I want to turn to another subject that you're very closely involved in that has to do with activities that you are part of beyond just seeing patients at Cherry Hill, because I understand you also see patients at the Virtua Campus as part of this Penn Virtua Neuroscience Partnership. I don't know a lot about this particular neuroscience partnership, but maybe you can talk about it a little bit. And I confess, I did a little bit of background digging on you, and I saw that you've had a big part in building that relationship from scratch in a way, as a part of the team that helped build this relationship from the neuroscience side. What was that about?
2: Well, I think there's, there's really a lot of people in both Virtua and Penn who have really put their heads together to try to bring the Penn and Virtua alliance to life. But I think the idea was that there hadn't been cranial neurosurgery at Virtua for a really long period of time, for 10 to 12 years. And that's something that they really wanted. I mean, there's a lot of people doing spine surgery in suburban New Jersey, but for cranial neurosurgery, there's in suburban New Jersey, it's a bit of a desert, if you will. They, of course, do cranial neurosurgery at Cooper and across the river and at the shore. But if you look at where there's a lot of people, there's several million people that live here, that live right around us. So we wanted to be able to provide that service. Virtua needed some help in bringing that to life. And Penn, of course, you know, there's been Penn neurosurgery for over 100 years. So it's something that we were able to do very well. And I think that the they're also from a business model perspective it's pretty innovative too because Penn is a vertically integrated health system. They own the hospitals, they own the physicians. So working with an outside health system like Virtua or another health system is is pretty innovative. As well, so there's all kinds of people: physicians, advanced practice providers, all kinds of administrators, horizontally working with each other between Penn and Virtua to bring this to life. And the patients always ask, "Well, what does this mean for me?" And basically, all it means is: look, we have Penn neurosurgeons seeing you here in New Jersey, and you're doing your surgery at Virtua in another health system. That's it. You're getting the same great Penn neurosurgery. You're getting great care at Virtua, and it's a model that's that's working really well. We're really excited to be able to deliver. Neurosurgery into suburban New Jersey in a, in a way like this that nobody else has ever tried.
1: I assume this wasn't a development that occurred overnight with a, hey, you know, wouldn't
2: neuroscience over here be great? Let's just take care of it. Uh. Huh. It's, uh, it's, it happened surprisingly quickly for two large health systems. So I think that the people at Penn and Bertra first had an idea about this in April of 2015, and that's the first time I heard about it. But then by the end of October, they had a transfer agreement together. And by January of just in the last year, we've had, we started seeing patients there and started operating on them there. So I would say that as big health systems go, if any corporate project, if you will, this came together really quickly.
1: Hmm. I would tend to agree. I mean, most of my experience seeing partnerships develop, it's usually at, I guess the key word there is glacial.
2: Uh, <laughs> as, as, this is actually really very, very, very fast. It happened really quickly. So,
1: mm-hmm. Anything I didn't ask you that you want to reiterate for our primary care audience on this subject of? neurosurgery, back and spine, spinal and uh, neck pain issues, and of course the partnership.
2: I think a light touch in terms of intervention is always a good place to start. And like you said, most primary care physicians have a sense of what's going to need further attention, and we're here to help. We also have a cranial neurosurgery service at Virtua, so obviously most primary care physicians' needs are going to be with the spine, but we have that too. So Light
1: touch theme from a neurosurgeon is brings tears to my eyes. It's fantastic. (laughs) I want to thank Dr. Connolly so much for joining us. Dr. Connolly, great to have you.
2: Thanks very much, Matt. Appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in a series, please visit reachmd.com slash Penn and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find education resources information about our expedited referral process and communication tools. To learn more, visit wwwpenmedicineorg slash physician link. Thank you for listening.